we just read about that, but in this time period, in the book of Lamentations, we see that the city has fallen, and if the temple is destroyed, and God's people are in mourning and chaos, the question has to be, has God forgotten about us? Is Yahweh, the God of Israel, finally done with us? And we saw last week as Jeremiah, who we believe wrote Lamentations, the weeping prophet the Old Testament deems him. He's asking this question, how can this happen? How did this happen? As he sits in his grief and he looks around, there's children dying in the streets. As we'll see in chapter 2, the elders are no longer taken care of in the house of God. And Jeremiah is in a place that many of us, I think if we're honest, have been when it comes to our grief and it comes to our sorrow and we sit there and we just think, how in the, and I'll let you fill in the blank, how did this happen? How did this happen? We saw last week that lament is personal. Lament is honest. Lament is heavy. There's no escaping it and it's something that instead of going around it or stepping over it, we, we have to go through it. We saw that lament, as we opened this book, is an invitation to worship. Is it an invitation to be honest before a holy God about how you're feeling? Absolutely. Is it an invitation to invite others into your pain and your grief? Absolutely. But it, at the heart of it, it's also this invitation to worship even when you don't see how God is working or you don't even think he is. And worship as we know it is worshiping a God that we have a covenant with. The main issue within this text as we look at this object of worship is that people have neglected, forsaken, and have sinned in infidelity when it comes to the covenant that they made with the God of Israel. They have broken their marriage vows, if you will. And for those of us who are married in the room, think back to your wedding day, the vows that you took. Hopefully you didn't say them, whether you wrote your own vows or repeated after a minister. Hopefully you didn't say them half-heartedly. Hopefully you said them with intention of keeping them. Hopefully you said them with, God, in this moment at least, I believe that we are going to cross the finish line together. And maybe that's not your story with marriage, and that's okay. This is not a sermon on that. But as we think about the fallout that we see in the book of Lamentations, we see that the Israelites have broken their vows before a holy God. And today as we continue in Lamentations chapter 2, Jeremiah is going to take it a step further as we deepen into this book. And so Lamentations chapter 2 will start like this. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a copy of Scripture. And if you don't own a copy of Scripture, there's free Bibles in the lobby. Please pick one up on your way out. But here's what it says. How the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his anger. He has thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. He did, not, he did not acknowledge his footstool in the day of his anger. Without compassion, the Lord has swallowed up all of the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has demolished the fortified cities of daughter Judah. He brought them to the ground and defiled the kingdom and its leaders. He has cut off every horn of Israel in his burning anger and withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything. He has strung his bow like an enemy. 
His right hand is positioned like an adversary. He has killed everyone who was the delight to his eye, pouring out wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. And then verse 5, it says this. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces and destroyed its fortified cities. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation with daughter Judah. Jeremiah in this passage is continuing the thought from last week that the Lord has, if we're honest with ourselves, that the Lord has done this. Not unwarranted, but the Lord has allowed this. And as Jeremiah gets into these first five verses of chapter 2, we see the, the change to an anthropomorphic language, if you will, where Jeremiah is equating the Lord that he's like an enemy. Now, this is not gospel. This is not the theological understanding that the Lord is our enemy. But Jeremiah is using this language to say he is like an enemy. It's like he has strung up his bow against us. But here's what we know. The Lord did not invade the city and destroy the temple. The Babylonians did. But nevertheless, Jeremiah, knowing that the God of the universe controls everything, isn't necessarily pointing to the Babylonians as the source of the downfall. He's saying the Lord is like my enemy. And it's a difficult truth within this book that because of the consequences of breaking their vows, the Lord has allowed them to be overtaken. And this is our feeling sometime. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, you are not immune to these things. And, 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 and maybe you've thought this or said this out loud. The Lord has forgotten me. The Lord is against me. God hates me. And this is awkward language for us because as we think of God, we ask possibly as we read Lamentations, where is the mercy? Where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the slow to anger and quick to compassion? And I think when we ask those questions, while they are good questions, we must understand that when it comes to reading Scripture in a specific book like this, where we see a specific time period, we have to understand that Jeremiah's emotions are being captured in a moment. You see, the timeline here is 587 B.C. It's a specific moment on the timeline of history. And Jeremiah is writing this. He's capturing it in a book with these poems and just to illustrate what i mean by that that it's not necessarily that jeremiah fully believes this but he's capturing it in a moment i just wanted to get real personal this morning and open even my own journal i know this isn't like a diary okay this is how i keep track of what i'm doing but i do journal and i was just flipping through it and this was on february um 11th i am anxious about the building i don't want to be but i can't shake it I couldn't sleep last night, and I just want to know what to do next. That was before we even had this place. If we flip a few days, I, I kind of laughed at myself, if you will. Um, this was three days before launch. This was on the 25th of March. We are days away from launch. I am stressed, tired, sad, pressured, sick of working on the space. The thing that I was worried about, now I'm sick of working on it. I'm sick of being there. I fear what everybody and everyone thinks. I want to impress everyone. How do people do this? <laughs> How long before I am done done? What can I do? I'm just feeling very defeated. Have I bitten off too much? You see, there are moments in time and moments in our life where do I really believe that God has led us here for, for, for me to feel defeated? 
Well, for two reasons, no. Number one, it's not about me, so no. But number two, look around us and what we're able to do. All the faithfulness that God has shown. And so what Jeremiah is doing, he is not saying, believer, God is against you. He's saying, in this moment, it feels like the Lord is my enemy. In that moment, on February 11th and on March 25th, I felt like this was too much. I remember calling pastors and being like, you've done this for five years. Some of you have done this for 10 years, multiple years, multiple decades. I haven't even made it to day one, and I kind of want to quit. How do you do this? Like, how do people do this for 25 years? That was the question that I was asking, and that's what Jeremiah is getting at. In this moment, the Lord is against us. How do we do this? We're done. And I think that one of the things that doesn't help us in 2021, no, we're not living in the ruins of the temple in 587 B.C., but we are living in an age where if you pick up your cell phone, everybody's life around you is so much better looking than yours. Many questions we, many, many, many times we ask the questions, how can this be, or why is it like this? Because I look at my neighbor's Instagram, and I see that their life is so much happier than mine. I see that their spouse is so much better looking. Their vacation looks so much more fun. They have the perfect job because they sit at home and blog all day while I'm at an office. And we live in an age, a digital age, where we're picking up our phone, studies say we're picking up our phone thousands of thousand times a day like like thousands of times that's a tongue twister and we recognize that we live in this digital age where your life is awful and everybody else's is so great church leaders aren't immune to this churches aren't immune to this it would be so much easier just to build an experience than a church like if we could just build a really great sunday morning we would hire musicians because that's what makes it great, a great band. We would do all the things to please everybody because we just want to build a Sunday morning experience that looks good on Instagram. We want to build a Sunday morning experience that makes the people at the Pilot Mountain Baptist Association happy. I want Acts 29 to look at our church and be so impressed. That would be so much easier. But nevertheless, I believe Lamentations is most of our lives. Where it's like not everything is golden, not everything is great. And in fact, it's hell right now. And if that is you, this is what I want to encourage you with. It'll be on the screen. That if you feel like the odds are stacked against you, you're not alone. Like if you're sitting in here this morning and you feel like the odds are stacked against you, for whatever reason, you're not alone. Maybe you feel like you've been dealt an unfair hand. And maybe you attribute the hand that you've been dealt with to the God of the universe. And you think, God, you could have stopped this. God, you can intervene if you want to. This diagnosis, this death, whatever's going on in your life didn't have to happen this way. And my back is against the wall and the odds are stacked against me. If that is you, you're not alone. And I just read my journal entries from months ago. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just saying this. You're not alone. But let's keep reading in Lamentations chapter 2 and notice the destruction that we get to as we look back at verse 6. So Yahweh's anger has burned. And here's what we get to in verse 6. He has wrecked his temple as if it were merely a shack in a field. Destroying his place of meeting, the Lord has abolished appointed festivals and Sabbaths in Zion. He has despised 
king and priest in his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his altar, his sanctuary. He has handed the walls of her palaces over to the enemy. He has raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of the appointed festival. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and he did not restrain himself from destroying. He made the ramparts and walls grieve. Together they waste away. And then verse 9 says this. Zion's gates have fallen to the ground. He has destroyed and shattered the bars of her gates. Her king and her leaders Live among the nations. Instruction is no more. And even our prophets receive no vision from the Lord. Do you notice what Jeremiah says that God destroyed? If we were to look back at verse 6 and 7, we would see words like his temple, his place of meeting, his altar, his appointed festivals and Sabbath. All these things that were crucial to being in the presence of the Lord within the Old Testament. The temple was not the same as what we're doing here. The temple was a place that God resided. Isn't it interesting that Yahweh is crushing the religious objects and the things that they needed to have this relationship with the Lord? And if it's destroyed, the question has to be, if there's no temple, if the altar is no longer a holy place, if the festivals and Sabbaths don't matter to you anymore, then God, where are you? And we live in this paradox today. That what would happen if we closed our doors? I mean, seriously, like we've only been a church for about seven months. But if we closed our doors this week, would the community notice? Because as much as this stuff mattered in the Old Testament, and it matters today, this space matters. God is removing it from their midst. He is crushing it. He is burning it down. And if we shut our doors, would you know what to do? Would the community notice? But I say it's a paradox because where does the Spirit of God reside now? It's not in a temple. It's in you. And so while it's important that our doors stay open, when we ask the question, where is your church, what would you say? What would I say? If someone asked me, where is your church, would I say 556 Arbor Hill Road? Probably. But at the same time, no. Because if the Spirit resides in all of us, I could also say, oh, well, my church, well, they're at school right now. My church is at their job right now. They're, they might be in the gym right now. They're probably eating dinner right now. So it's this paradox that we live in that if we closed our doors, it would be bad. However, that's not what this passage is saying because for us today, the Spirit now resides in us. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 4. You don't have to flip there. It'll be on the screen. John chapter 4, he is talking to a woman at the well, and this is what he says in verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying here? That many years later, after Judah has been destroyed, after the people of Israel have faced destruction, Jesus comes onto the scene. 
And this Samaritan woman, who did not practice a temple life, but knew enough about temple history to say that is the most important place. That is where the Jews worship their God. Jesus says, there will be a day that you won't worship on this mountain, nor in this place. But all of his followers will worship in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying? That even if the whole thing burns to the ground... The spirit that I am pouring out and the relationship that I will have with my people will no longer reside in one place, but will reside in many, many locations. Where is our church? Well, it just depends on where you're at. Are you at school? Are you at work? Where are you? In Lamentations, God allowed the temple to be destroyed. The people's sacrifices could no longer atone for their sins. And for us today, even if these church doors would close, I want to encourage us with this, that our source of life must be Jesus, not religion. The Lord crushed religion, and the people were left wondering, what do we do now? And many times in our lives today, we think, especially when lament comes our way, if I would just pray more, this wouldn't have happened. If I would have just gone to church, dang it, I didn't tithe last month, that's why this is happening. And the Lord of the universe becomes a genie in a bottle. So I want to encourage you this morning. The source of your life cannot be religion. Because a few bad months, these doors are closing. (laughs) We could close these doors. God could do whatever he wants. Citizens is just a blimp on the history of what God is doing. So we have to have more. It's not a bad thing to pray. It's not a bad thing to read your scripture. But the goal here is not a better Christian, but a closer disciple. That's the goal. I'm not here to make you a better Christian. Because if I knew how to do that, I would do it to myself. Our goal here is a closer disciple that says, you know what? The spirit of the living God resides in me. Yes, I go to 556 Arbor Hill Road. Yes, I serve. Yes, I give. Yes, I'm a partner there. And I love it. But at the end of the day, The spirit of the living God is neither on this mountain nor in this temple. It's living inside of me. That day is here because Jesus changes everything. Your goal is to be a closer disciple, not a better Christian. Jesus isn't after better Christians. He's after you who pick up all your shame, all your sin, all your discomfort, all your lament, and come closer to him. Let's keep reading Lamentations chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Nine again. Zion's gates have fallen to the ground. He has destroyed and shattered the bars of her gates. Her king and her leaders live among the nations. Instruction is no more. God has removed himself. And even her prophets receive no vision from the Lord. Verse 10. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. And then verse 11. Notice this change. Notice how it goes to Jeremiah getting really personal here. My eyes, my eyes are worn out from weeping. I am churning within. My heart is poured out in grief because of the destruction of my dear people, because infants and nursing babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry out to their mothers, where's the grain and wine, as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life pours out in the arms of their mothers. What can I say on your behalf? What can I compare to you, daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to so that I may console you, virgin daughter Zion? For your ruin 
is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets saw visions for you that were empty and deceptive. They did not reveal your iniquity and so restore your fortunes. They saw pronouncements for you that were empty and misleading. All who passed by scornfully clapped their hands at you. They hissed, they shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. In this city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth, all of your enemies open their mouth against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth saying, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it. And then verse 17, the Lord has done what he has planned. He has accomplished his decree, which he had ordained in days of old. He has demolished without compassion, letting the enemy gloat over you and exalting the horn of your adversaries. What a place of vulnerability. What a place of vulnerability. And lament will do that to you. We sort of talked about this last week, but lament, and when we get to that place of lament, is a place of vulnerability. And I think there's three things that we see in this section where we see that it's forcing us to be vulnerable. The first thing is an emotion. Verse 11, my eyes are so tired from weeping. You know how vulnerable it is when someone comes up to you and is like, have you been crying? Many of us in here are like, no, I haven't. But you can see it. And what a vulnerable place that is. My eyes are worn out and questioning. Lament is vulnerable in emotion. But then verse 13, lament is also vulnerable in your questioning. What does Jeremiah write? What can I say to you, daughter Zion? Who can heal you? Your iniquities are as vast as the sea. As Jeremiah writes, see here, there's no context or size. Within the ancient Near East, if you wanted to look at something that you could not measure, let's look at the sea. As the people looked out and saw that there was no end. Jeremiah is vulnerable in his questioning. Who can save us? Who can heal us? There's vulnerability in, in confessing that I don't know. And third, vulnerability in the presence of others. Verses 15 and 16 looks at Israel's enemies who came before them clapping their hands. There are folks who will rejoice in your grief. And if we are not careful, we will do the same. Have you ever said this about someone? Well, they got what they deserved. What comes around goes around. Have we ever said that being just like Israel's enemies, clapping in the face of those who are suffering? It's a vulnerable thing to be in the presence of our enemies, especially when we are facing something. Their grief, their nakedness, their famine, it's all in the public, and they don't have a choice. You don't have a choice when Jeremiah writes that babies are dying in their mother's arms. You don't have a choice. If there's no food, you're going to starve. And maybe that's you today, and you feel like you're just out there in the midst of the sea with no lifeboat, with no life preserver, and you have no choice. What can be done? Let's finish this section today in these last four verses. Verse 18, what can be done? That's the question we're asking as we read this. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. Wall of daughter Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief and your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night from the first watch of the night. Pour out your heart like water before the Lord's presence. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger 
at the head of every street. Lord, look and consider to whom you have done this. Should women eat their own children, the infants that they have nurtured? Should priests and prophets be killed in the Lord's sanctuary? By the way, I wouldn't put verse 20 on like a coffee mug. Both young and old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without compassion. You summon those who terrorize me on every side as if for an appointed festival day. On the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. My enemy has destroyed those I nurtured and reared. And then we end chapter 2, and we're all encouraged. But in all seriousness, I think there is an encouragement because in the midst of this lament and in the midst of this grief, did you notice verse 18 and 19, how it kind of shifts? Jeremiah's roller coaster of emotion. That while he was writing, you know, things like verse 20, like, should women eat their own children who they are nurtured? And we say, no. Still in verse 18 and 19, he actually gives instruction. So as we're asking the question, what can be done, we finally have a command that if we would just look at it, we see this. What does he say? The first command is this. Let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief and your eyes no rest. What is he saying here? If you're in lament, grieve. Give yourself permission to grieve. Call out in the midst of that. Give your eyes no rest. Don't try to stop your tears. Cry. And then verse 19. Not only are you commanded to cry, and it's okay, but he says, arise and cry out. So when your tears will not leave you, what is our next thing? Cry out. Call out. And call out to who? Well, verse 20, Jeremiah invokes the Lord that if we are crying out, he addresses the Lord and says, Lord, look and consider. As the poem concludes today, we are given instruction. We are given instruction that this is a prayer of petition. That, Lord, while all these things in verses 1 through 19 are happening, and while religion has been crushed, and while the temple is destroyed, and the people are in ruin, and people are dying in the streets, there is something about verse 20 that Jeremiah is instructing us to call out before the Lord's presence. Call out before the Lord's presence. And as we said last week, and we as, as we conclude today, there is something about calling out to the Lord in the midst of this grief. You see, the fact of the matter is, is that the Israelites, the people of God, have broken their marriage vows. And God is very serious when it comes to breaking his covenant. As God's people, as the chosen bride, the Lord says, you belong to me, no other gods, no other nations. But the people have gone for other gods and other nations. They have stepped out on what their covenant was. And God is faithful to judge when we go against him. In the face of evil and in the face of destruction, God is faithful to stick to that covenant that says it will not go well for you if you have any other gods before me. It will not go well. And because God is faithful to judge when people have broken the marriage vows, the good news is, and this is why I believe that Jeremiah will write verse 20, look and consider us, Lord, because if God is faithful to judge when the covenant is broken, he is faithful to be faithful when the covenant is upkept. And here's the good news for us today. Who is our covenant now? Jesus. 
You and I are not bound to the same covenant that the people were here where it's like, I better go to church on Sunday. I better give my temple tax. I better go there and have the priest read aloud the book of Esther to me. Our new covenant, as the New Testament would bring, as Jesus comes onto the scene, our new covenant is Jesus, and he ain't going nowhere. If Jesus cannot be broken any longer because he is the living God that we read about, if that is who Jesus is and he is our new covenant, then guess what? We can do what verse 20 says and cry out to a God who is compassionate to us. And our sermon in a sentence today is simply this, that lament points us to a compassionate God who hears our cries. A compassionate, a compassionate God who allows cities to be destroyed? Absolutely. Absolutely. A God who sees your tears, who says, don't give your tears any rest. But nevertheless, cry out to me because I am faithful to you. I am faithful to keep my covenant. And if we are in Jesus, this is the gospel. That Jesus has now paid the price for our sins so that when Adam steps out on the Lord again and my devotion is something other than him, what is seen before me is the Lord. It is Jesus. It is that his blood has covered the sins of Adam. And so you and I have an opportunity in here to come under this new covenant and experience the faithfulness of God towards us because of what Jesus has done. That's why we read Philippians 2 to begin this service. Philippians 2 is all about, not about how faithful you are to God, but how faithful he is to you. And lament points us to a compassionate God, not an angry God, not a, not a God who hates us, not a God who is our enemy, but a compassionate God because of we have been reconciled in Jesus. He makes the first move towards us. And salvation is simply that God heard our prayer for mercy. Whatever you're walking through this morning in the midst of chaos, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of all of this stuff is burning to the ground. It's worth noting that Jeremiah says to call out to the Lord. Call out. Call out. And Lord, as we call out, would you consider us? Would you consider us in our time of need? And if you were in Jesus Christ this morning, you too have the opportunity to call out even in the midst of lament. If everything burns to the ground, Jesus will stand. That is the good news. That as people in our lives pass away, as, as diagnoses are not good, as, as school is awful and you wish you had a better job and your marriage isn't what, if it all burns to the ground, at the end of the day, Jesus will still be standing. And you and I live in that new covenant. You and I live where, Lord, I am <laughs> three days away from launch and I think I've bitten off too much. But yet God is still working in us. So whatever you are walking through this, 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 this morning and this week, there is good news because lament, your sorrow, your tears actually point you to cry out to a God who hears you, a compassionate God.